Amen. That was a great song. I'd never done that song to that tune, so uh, thank you, Pastor Steve. As was mentioned, we're continuing our series on a verse-by-verse study through the book of Galatians, considering what is, what does it look like to follow the, the true gospel. We're going to do a bit of review this morning because our, our, our gospel, our, our letter is going to take a bit of a pivot, but remembering the logic of how we got there is really important. It all begins because some people have come down from Jerusalem, the the Judaizers, and they're they're disturbing this church and arguing that it's not just by faith alone and Christ alone, that they also have to obey the works of Moses, the, the law. And Paul, who was instrumental in this church, let's just say he is less than pleased, less than thrilled with this. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in his grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. We, we all agree that, that if you're going to surprise the Apostle Paul, if you're going to astonish him, this is not the way that you want to do that at all. Part of what is on display here is whose gospel is it? Paul's apostolic ministry comes under regular attack. And and part of the angle of attack here is, well, it's really just Paul's gospel. And what he tries to help them remember is, look, it's not my gospel that was preached to you. It's really Christ's and in order to make this argument, he goes through, for about chapters 1.12 through 2.10, his own personal experiences and interactions with the gospel. He's trying to highlight through his own life what was going on, and he, and he starts the argument by saying, okay, you think you can perfect yourself through the law? Guys, I was doing way better than all of you. I was advancing in Judaism beyond my own age among my people. Trying to highlight, look, look, if you guys think you can do it, I could have done it way better. And I'm telling you, that is not the way to go. Ultimately, his argument reached is the crescendo, one of the most important verses for us to, to lock onto in all of Christianity. We know that a person is not justified. We know that he's not made right by the works of the law. How is a person made right? He's made right through faith in Christ. That's the core of the gospel message right there. That it's not your deeds that you did do or didn't do that make you righteous. It's the, it's the deeds of Christ. It's what he did on the cross, what we were just singing about in our place. And because of what he did for those who are Christians, for those who are in Christ, Paul says, I've been crucified and with Christ it's no longer I who live But it's Christ who lives in me. And all of us should say in our minds, the the life that we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in the Son of God who, who loved me and gave himself up for me. So Paul takes a bit of time to to open up the the argument there, to, to lay out why it is by faith alone. And then he sets aside in the section that we're 
going to study here this morning, he sets aside the tightly compacted logic and he shifts to a personal appeal. And he starts our section with possibly some of the most memorable lines in all of Scripture. Oh, foolish Galatians. Now, in case you think that he's going a bit too far, just, just remember, keep in the back of your mind, he really does love these people. This is a church that he loves, but, but right now, the right words is to call them foolish. We know that he loves them because, for example, earlier, he said he'd call them his brothers. He viewed them that way, brothers in Christ. Or, or later, and we haven't studied this yet, he'll call the Galatian church, my little children. So, so he has a, a powerful word for them for sure. But, but at this point, he's going to lay out, instead of a tightly packed argument, uh, an emotional appeal here. But he still can speak the truth in love. Do you agree with me that that can happen? You, you can still have an emotional appeal to someone, but you can speak the truth in love. Elsewhere, he'd tell us that this is what we're supposed to do in Ephesians 4.15. We're, we're no longer to be children, which in our book and even in this book, children is a term of endearment, but, but also an indication of their spiritual maturity who, who's tossed to and fro. That's not what we're supposed to be done by waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, which are by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, how, how do we not become children? We, we speak the truth, but we speak it in love with the goal that we're to grow up into every way, into him who is the head, into Christ the goal for all of us is as we speak the truth and what Paul is going to do here in this next section, even as he directly addresses them, oh, foolish Galatians, the goal is to maturity. And the way that he does that is he gives us six questions. Six questions for us to understand the, the central place of faith. So follow along with me as I read from Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1 all the way to verse 9. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> o foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask only this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? Or by hearing with faith. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected or made complete or whole by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham the man of faith. 
We're using six questions that the Apostle Paul gives us to understand the central place of faith. And the first question is this, who's trying to mislead you? Who, who is trying to mislead you? He, he says it this way in the text, who's bewitched you? Now, we have to understand what that word means then here for a moment. Bewitched means to charm, to fascinate in, in a misleading way as by flattery or, or false promises or occultic power clearly suggests the use of feelings over fact. Now, sometimes we can take that word and, and we can read and hear, it's like demonic powers. Meaning that someone came to the church, they, they said some magical words, and, and all of a sudden the congregation had no control over their bodies or, or they had no control over their minds. Now, it's, it's true, there's certainly evidence from the Scriptures. We see demonic activity, demons possessing people, and, and they don't have control over their faculties at all points in time. That is not what Paul is talking about here when he asks, who bewitched you? He's talking about who scammed you. It's kind of like that, do you remember that African prince scam email that was circulating like, like 15 years ago? Surely if you were around then, you received one if not a dozen of those emails. The, the scam went a little bit like this. The sender was a wealthy prince who had all kinds of money and it was just locked up because of some goofiness. And you, because you're such a well-known philanthropist on the continent of Africa, you are the one who can help. And what did you need to do? You just needed to send a little bit of money. And all that that African prince would do is he would reward you greatly for helping him out. Now, if you were a victim of that scam, I am so very sorry. I actually know persons who, who fell victim to that very scam very hard. At the core of the scam is someone preying on innocent people. No doubt, it, as they're preying on these innocent people, there, there are issues in their heart. They're wrestling with greed. They're wrestling with importance. They're, they're wrestling with discontentment. But the scammer who emails them, they didn't have any supernatural powers to prey on their victims. They weren't using force. No. Right? They, they'd use the hearts of the victims. They had tricked them. Paul is using that same type of thinking here. It's not like the Judaizers came to town, uttered some magical words, and now the group of Galatians are captive against their wills. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying they played on their fears. He played on their wants. He played on their desires. And Paul's pointing out, look, it was before your eyes that Christ was portrayed crucified. No doubt some had been there and seen because we learned about how the church fled Jerusalem. But, but more had heard of Christ crucified through the preaching of the word. And yet they were so easily misled. So the question that I'm attempting to ask here this morning is who is misleading you? 
And I ask it that way because I believe that we're living in a world that is constantly trying to mislead you and we might not even always be fully aware of it. Right? In the case of the Galatian church, we got a hard time believing that everything was overt. We think that there was a lot of subtlety because of what Paul would say in chapter 2, verse 4, that they slipped in and they spied. So we know that there was cunning, and we know that this slipping in, we know that this cunning, it comes from the father of all lies, the devil. He was deceiving them, and and the question is, before the house this morning, how is he trying to deceive you? Take, for example, your social media intake or other entertainment choices, if you have that. I think it's especially true of our younger generations, but, but older generations can be influenced as well. We see the rise of promoters of evil through influencers who try to encourage people to have certain body image or certain values, to believe certain things, to, to follow after popular trends. And they most certainly are interested in going after young people. There's no doubt about it. But, but it doesn't discriminate based on age. I've seen plenty of folks who have far less hair than I do be captivated by the world. Getting all fired up and believing wrong things. My point is we can learn from the church at Galatia by seeing that the father of lies who was attempting to mislead them, in some way is most certainly attempting to mislead you. In that context, Satan was trying to lead them out of the path of salvation. I'm sure that that's happening today in some places, but he's also trying to lead us out of the path other ways. Again, it might not be social media, it might be other entertainment choices or hobbies that you partake in, but, but the reality is something and someone is trying very actively to bewitch you. And I'd encourage you today to consider, maybe even this week, spending time doing analysis in your own life and, and trying to find where is this present. And and especially if you have young children in your home or grandchildren, that you would do this for them. I can't tell you how many times when I'm doing counseling with families and teens that I learned that they just have unfettered access to the internet and all of the evils that exist out there. Let's learn from the church at Galatia that that someone is trying to bewitch you and they're most certainly trying to bewitch your children. Because the battle that we fight every day, Paul would tell us in another book, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We we wrestle against the rulers, against authority. Let's talk about earthly authority. Let's talk about heavenly, demonic authorities against cosmic powers in the present darkness against spiritual forces of evil in in the heavenly places. Each and every one of us here in this room is involved in a spiritual battle that we cannot see and perceive with our eyes, with our ears. And so the question is, who is trying to mislead you? Satan is going to remain vigilant and he is going to attack Our job is to be on guard. 
The second question that Paul uses to make his point is, how does one receive the Spirit? Let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, interestingly enough, this is the first mention of the Holy Spirit in this book. And so let me, let me just say a word about the Holy Spirit. We see from, from our text here, all three persons of the Godhead, Christ crucified, the Father who sends the Spirit to his children. And for them and for us, the, the receiving of the Holy Spirit is a big deal. It's a big deal for them. It should be for those in Christ a big deal. For, for them, it came with a very obvious and external evidence of salvation. And this happened, if again, if you're tracking with the logic of the book, this external evidences of salvation was present through miracles and tongues in order to authenticate the message that Gentiles were being saved. Now, we don't believe that we need the external manifestations of miracles and tongues anymore. We don't need that because we have God's sufficient word and the goal of those authenticating signs is no longer needed. But for them and for us, like I've said, the role in the ministry of the Holy Spirit is incredibly important. And he's asking, well, how did you receive him? Let me give you at least three areas really quickly that highlight why the, the role of the Spirit was important to them and it was important to us. And the first is this. It's by the Spirit that we were, we were sealed. The Holy Spirit that indwells us is our guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. There's an internal communication, an internal reminder that tells each and every person who is saved that you are a child of God. And that internal subjective feeling, the, the church at Galatians knew it, and if you're in Christ, you know it as well. The gift of the Holy Spirit truly is the believer's most unmistakable evidence of God's favor. His greatest proof of salvation and the guarantee of eternal glory. So the Spirit was important because it internally communicates, reminds, and refreshes you are saved. Secondly, it does this, Christ tells us, that when the Spirit comes, and He has come, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. A meaning when there's areas in our life as believers when we sin, the Spirit's job is to convict us. And for those not in Christ, the Spirit does work to try to convict them of their sin as well. The Galatians knew this. They'd felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit in their lives and they'd changed their ways. And thirdly, although we could keep going on and on, the Spirit helps you. It's God who's working out his, your salvation in you. You have to work out your own salvation, but it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Uh, meaning that the power that you need to say no to sin, the, the strength that you need that comes with serving, the ability to respond lovingly, even when someone wrongs you, that comes from the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. 
So lock on. If I've, if I've lost you, I apologize, but lock on here. By having the Spirit, the Galatians could see that their lives had been radically changed. And they knew it. They, they remember when their lives were one way and now it is different. They knew what pre-Holy Spirit looked like and they don't want to go back to that. They knew the joy of the Lord. They, they knew freedom from sin and on and on. And Paul asks, well, how did you get that? How did you receive the Holy Spirit? Was, was it by what you did or was it by faith? And, of course, the answer is by faith. Now, a practical application for us then could be to ask, do you have the Holy Spirit? I think that's a, a great question to ask. Perhaps maybe even a better question, though, is to say, if you have received the Spirit, is there evidence of a changed life? Meaning, when we look at the Galatian church, there was no argument that they had received the Spirit. They knew that their lives were dramatically different. They knew it, and Paul knew it. And yet, there are persons who claim to follow Christ, maybe even persons who are here, who their lives don't reflect change at all. And so, how did you receive the Spirit? Is there evidence of dramatic change in your life? Is there enslavement that you refuse to give up? Habits and sins that you will not forsake? Perhaps words that you speak that, that don't reflect that the Spirit indwells you? Or when it comes up for opportunities to serve others, do you refuse? We see evidence of, of what it looks like to be a follower of Christ, to be filled with the Spirit. We, we see Christ was a servant and his people are to be servants. And so if you would say that you have received the Spirit, there, there should be produce. There should be fruit in your life. There, there should be evidence that shows you received him. It's not just a prayer that a person prays. A life needs to be fundamentally altered. And so if your life has not been fundamentally altered, you might be, in the words of Paul, bewitched. The third question that he poses here, four words in English, three in Greek, are you so foolish are you acting foolishly? Why are you doing this? Now, this actually brings our attention back to the, the opening of our chapter here where Paul calls them the fools. Well, let's make sure we understand what this word means. It, it doesn't connote mental deficiency, but mental laziness and carelessness. The believers in Galatia weren't stupid. They simply failed to use their spiritual intelligence when faced by unscriptural, gospel-destroying teachings of the Judaizers. They were not using their heads. So the question here is not a mental breakdown or ignorance. It's, it's laziness. It's, it's carelessness in their thinking. They had not, in, in a way, they hadn't been... Bereans. They had not examined the teachings that had come their way. Who knows ultimately how the Judaizers charmed them? Maybe it was with forceful rhetoric. 
Maybe it was with fear tactics. It could have been the allure of a, of a works-based religion that was enticing to them. Paul, even at one point elsewhere, as he writes to his young son in the faith, Titus, actually lumps himself in the category of foolish. And notice how foolish and the life of the disobedient, the, the life of the unregenerate, almost seem to walk hand in hand. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So Paul is highlighting here the connection between being foolish and devoted to some sort of false religion and all of the evil things that go with it. But the word choice here that Paul is putting forward is he's trying to highlight, I think, how easy this can be. He's seeing how easy it was for them. He's in essence saying, look, at, at the first sign of trouble, you guys like rolled over like a dog and you showed them your belly. You're acting so foolish. How did this happen? It happened because they were not firmly grounded in the faith. They'd been led astray by undisciplined thinking, careless theology, to the point now that they're on the verge of embracing dangerous doctrine. They weren't grounded firmly in the truth. They're not taking the time to make sure that everything that they thought and everything that they did was grounded in the Word of God. Oh, church, how easy that can be. How easy it can be for us to be, to be led astray by false teachings based on all sorts of things. If we are not a congregation that wants to be tossed to and fro, if we don't want to be called foolish, then the answer is really simple. I think the answer is we, we have to know our Bible and the doctrine that comes from it. We have to know our Bibles backwards and forwards. In our society, as it moves further and further away and into darkness, we need more of our Bible and not less. That's why I'm thankful that we have so many things like Sunday school for adults and for children. We've got important ministries like Awana, small group Bible studies. We need, as a church, more and more of our Bible, not less, so that we don't hear one day, oh foolish Galatians. Uh, last week, I had actually mentioned that I was leaving town to go teach in a conference for biblical counseling. And counseling is just one-on-one -on -one discipleship to, to help another individual who has a, a spiritual need. So right when a person is, effect, is struggling with the effects of enslaving sin, well, when a marriage is falling apart, when, when anger is always the first response, whatever it is, the goal is to walk alongside of them according to the Word of God because we believe that the Scriptures provide all that we need for life and godliness. Now, Paul would say it this way, concerning you, my brethren, I myself am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish or correct one another. And as I was leaving town, I was just thinking, you know, it would be amazing. It would be great if as a church we had 15, 20 people who are trained, 
who'd be able to sit down with other members of the congregation who are hurting and and to disciple in a one-on-one fashion and to show them that, that we can rely fully and completely on the Bible for all of life's promises. Because part of me wonders today that if Paul began showing up to churches and saw how much they depend on the world for their answers... Oh, okay, your marriage is broken, you're, you're, you're caught in sin, you're, you're struggling with anger. Well, well, I guess we should turn to the world instead of the word for our answers. I wonder how often, if Paul was visiting our churches, we would hear, oh, foolish Bereans. If we don't want to be misled like they were, If we don't want to hear at the end of our journey, you fool, then we must know God's word backwards and forwards. We must know it so well. Another way that we could apply this to to answer the question, why are we acting so foolishly to make sure that we don't hear that, is to make sure that there are other resources that we're imbibing in our spiritual journey. The Sunday sermon Sunday school is is not enough in any one of our lives. We we also have to be adding to our lives other resources. Uh, I personally think that if you're not using the library that this church has, because it is full of many resources to help you in your spiritual walk, to, to help you grow, then you are leaving something on the table. Not only do we have so many great folks serving in that library who are there to help you, But there are thousands, literally thousands of books that will help you in your spiritual walk. So let me encourage you to make sure that you're always adding to your life resources that will aid you in your spiritual walk and your purposed study of the Bible so that at the end you don't hear, you foolish Galatians, fourth question that he asks is, do you think that you can start one way and finish another? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected? Are you now being made complete? Are you now being made whole by the flesh? The question is meant, again, to highlight the the illogical way the Galatians are acting and arguing. He's saying, so, okay, you started by the Spirit. Now you're going to end things in the flesh? That makes absolutely no sense. That, that is double-minded. And wherever we find double-mindedness in the Bible, we find all sorts of trouble. You may remember one of the earliest and most profound examples of double-mindedness. It's when God commanded King Saul to go destroy and strike Amalek and devote to all destruction all that they have. Not to spare them, but to kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey as a sign of his judgment on that evil and wicked nation. And how should that story have ended? And Saul did all that was commanded him. It should be a short walk from what God clearly tells us to do and the people of God obeying it. Do you agree with that? 
Of course, that's not how the story ended at all. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fattened calf and the lambs and all that was good, right? In their mind, they spared all that was good and they would not utterly destroy. But all that was despised, thought very little and small and worthless, they devoted to destruction. He started off on one way, commanded by God, and yet he tries to finish in another. He, he's double-minded. And of course, the result was the Lord says, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, righteously angry, and he cried out to the Lord all night. There can be, in the Christian life, no mixing. You can't start by living for Christ, living by the power of the Spirit, and then try to complete your race another way. The gospel must remain pure. Later, he'll tell the Galatians, a little leaven, it will leaven, it will destroy the whole lump. And so, let me ask you, church, this morning, is there consistency in your walk? Are you, believer, the same person week in and week out? When you come to church and, and when you go home, are you dramatically different people? When you go to the office, are you a different individual? You cannot start one way and end another. Which would lead him to ask his next question. Is all your work and your suffering, has it been for nothing? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain. It's not 100% clear if that church had gone through an incredible amount of suffering and persecution like other places, there's always a challenge with the historical record that's 2,000 years old. But we know that some of them, obviously fleeing from Jerusalem, had gone through that. It's a great reminder for us first to see that there will always be, at some very real level, suffering for your faith. That's nothing new under the sun. And I know that some of you, especially for the younger persons, uh, holding fast to your faith brings an incredible amount of suffering. If there's ways that the church family can minister to you, to pray for you, we want to be there. But suffering and hardship have always been a part of the Christian gospel. One of the church fathers who lived about two generations after Paul, Tertullian, writes, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. I have no doubt that many of you have suffered for your faith the way the Galatians had suffered for their faith. And Paul was asking, was it for nothing then? Of course, the answer was, your suffering isn't in vain as long as you remain on the path. It is remarkable how many Christians we see, even pillars today, who have bent the knee to modernity. How often have we read one of those stories, how, how so-and-so changed his belief on something that was elemental to the gospel. They, they had at one point, they had made a stand, but then as of late, they gave in to the pressures of the world. I hope, 
I pray that we guard our lives carefully and so that we don't fall the way that they do. Brian, as a church, we need to be careful, but we also need to be careful in our lives. And so, when the pressures of life come to you, when you're at work and a joke is being made, when someone puts something on the television or invites you to a movie, whatever it is, do you embrace the suffering that is going to be part of your faith? Or, or do you withdraw the way Paul is talking here and prove the vanity of the suffering to begin with? Church, I think we need to be ready for suffering that is going to come our way. Being a gospel-centered church that boldly proclaims Christ alone, it will one day bring suffering. In one day, as a church, we may not be able to do all that we're doing now, but, but while the day is still here, or in the words of Jesus, while it is still day, Night is coming when no one can work. We should do the work of him who sent me. Now is the time to do work. Now is the time to be busy in ministry. One day suffering will come our way. One day we won't be able to do all of the outreaches that we do. One day we won't be able to do building programs and expansions. One day that is coming. And I hope that we are ready but in your lives right now as you experience suffering for your faith, it's only in vain if you wander from the path. The last question that he asks to make his point that we'll land on here in a moment is, does God supply because of your good deeds? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and, and works miracles among you do so by works of the law? Or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham, and then quoting the Old Testament, believed God. He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Is the blessing that comes from the Lord a result of your faith or the result of you doing good deeds? Again, the text mentions miracles. Remember, miracles were an authenticating sign to legitimize the gospel. They're, they're not needed for today. You might be thinking on this very point that Paul is trying to highlight here and that we're drawing attention to. You might be thinking about one of the greatest heresies of our time. Uh, the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel teaches that, that if you just do these things, generally if you, if you sow a seed of faith, which by the way is generally code word for mail the preacher a really big check. That if you do that, then God, he's going to bless you. If you do all of these things, you'll have your best life now. Oh, church, I hope and pray that we never fall, that we never are swept away by such evil lies. Some preachers tell you that if you send them cash, God will give you an abundant life. Paul tells you that is not it at all. It's not by works. It's not by works that you've received anything. It is by faith in Christ So should you be tempted to believe that there's some sort of causality the way that False teachers would have you believe. Remember that he supplies the Spirit. He does good deeds because of his love and because of your faith.
Lastly then, what was the, the purpose of all of these questions to help us see and understand the, the central role of faith? It was to point to and ultimately highlight the prototype and father of faith as the proof of his argument. He's trying to show Abraham as that. Abraham is the prototype. He, he's the father of faith. He, he's the proof of the argument. And he says, know then that it is those of faith. Not those of works. Not those of circumcision. It's those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. See, over and over, and we've been through this before, the Jews were trying to hide their salvation and their works righteousness Paul brings them back even further. He says, look at the father of faith, Abraham. He was justified. He was made righteous because he believed. He was not justified. He was not saved because of his actions, but by faith. And I hope that as we wrestle with those six questions that Paul poses to us to see the, the centrality and the essential of our faith, that we would take very seriously the implications that follow those questions. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you for your word and and the powerful questions that we wrestle with this morning. To see how often we find our hope, our trust in other things than your word. How often we would be guilty of being foolish Galatians. How often we have not stood when life is hard and difficult and the trials. Father, I pray that as we wrestle with the various questions that have come from this text that that not only would we see that salvation is by faith alone and Christ alone, but that, Father, we would also see that living those things out, being aware of who is trying to mislead us, acting foolishly by, by putting things before us and believing them, Father, that, that you would guard us and keep us from all of those things. We ask this in your Son's most precious and his holy name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.